Romans 8. <laughs> if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 8, the last few weeks we've been in Romans 8, and we've hit a lot of topics. We've talked about uh, everything that God has provided for us, the knowns of the Christian life that God has given us to live out the Christian life. Because Jesus, when we were without strength, he died on the cross to pay for our sins and to procure a way that we could be brought back into fellowship with our Creator. But the problem is, is that we think, okay, now that I'm saved, God expects me to pick myself up by my own bootstraps and live the life out that he's given me on my own strength. But that's not true at all, because he who is faithful to save us will be faithful to complete this salvation until the day that we see Christ. Whether we see him practically when he sets his foot down on the Mount of Olives when he returns, as he said he would, or whether we see him when we go to see him when we pass on from this life through whatever circumstance. So Paul has written here in Romans chapter 8, now that we've come to the part where he's going to give us the knowns of the Christian life. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8, he explains to us that we've been given a new position because we are in Christ. Our position with God is no longer one where we sit on a judgment seat, but we've been placed in the place of the righteous. Not because we've earned it, but because he's given it to us as a free gift. Verses 5 through 13, he explains that the believer in Christ has a new guest. This new guest is the Holy Spirit, the gift he's given us is his spirit, the same spirit that resided in Jesus, that gave him power over sin and death, is the same spirit that he's given to reside within us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is empowered by the Holy Spirit in each one of us, you and I. And then he's explained in verse 14 through 17 that the believer has a new adoption. Now we think of adoption and we think of a family that takes a child that's not their own into their own home and provides for them, protects them. And many of us that maybe didn't have parents that were always able to be there or weren't always there, we know what it means to be adopted by someone else that takes care of particular needs that weren't met. But in this case, I was reading a, a guy talking about this passage this week, and he said, isn't it interesting that in this world, many times people will adopt that don't have any children. Maybe they were not allowed to have children because of just physical inability to do so because of just a lack in their body or something. And so they'll, they'll say, you know what? God can give us kids anyway. We can adopt. But God, the Father, adopted us even though he already had a child. He had Jesus, his only son. So he didn't adopt because he had a lack. He adopted out of love, desiring to have a relationship with you and I. And not only that, but he adopted us for the purposes of making us like his son. And so then the believer has a, a new position. He's got a new guest. He or she has a new guest, the Holy Spirit. We have a new adoption. We've been, we're under the care of the Lord now. We're his. The believer has a new expectation, a new hope that God's going to not only redeem our soul, which he's already done, but he's going to redeem our lives practically and physically one day. Just as Jesus, when he was rose from the dead, had this glorified body that though it had holes in it, he was able to eat, he was able to be touched, he was able to taste, 
He was able to converse with his disciples and yet somehow when they were locking themselves in the upper room, he showed up to see them and he walked through the wall. So God's not only redeeming us from the inside, but he's also going to redeem this this body that's breaking down and wearing out. And if anybody's realistic in here, you know, you feel the aches and the pains of just whether it was things you did in the past or things that are happening to you right now, our bodies are wearing out. No matter how much shape you're in, your body will wear out. So our expectation, our hope, is in a kingdom that God's giving us. And it's in a, and it's in a plan that's not yet fulfilled. Paul even said that. He said, if, if our hope is something that we can see, it's not hope, it's just reality. But if it's something that hasn't taken place yet, then we hope, and it causes us to persevere through the temporal things of this life that sometimes are very difficult. And then the believer has a new prayer helper. In verses 26 and 27, God's told us through the Pentapol that when we don't know what to pray, when we're in a spot, when we're in dire straits, and we're like, Lord, how in the world am I supposed to get through this? And we don't even know how to pray. He's told us that Jesus himself sits at the right hand, which is the hand of power in front of any ruler, and he actually intercedes. He prays for us when we don't know how to pray. So God has not only procured salvation, he's not only given us wisdom to get through this life, but he's still praying for us, just like he did in John chapter 17, when he was getting ready to go to the cross. He prayed for all those who would believe, based on the testimony of the apostles. And then, we've been given a new knowledge. The believer has a new knowledge, according to Acts chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where he says, uh, well, I better read it instead of making up my own version. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, he says something interesting. He says, for we know. To know something is to take it as fact no matter what happens. He says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And you and I, if we are in Christ, if we're a new believer, we're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away, he's made all things new. And so because of that, we're called according to his purpose. He's referred to you by name. He's enlightened you. He's opened up your understanding. He's taken away your blindness. And now you understand that this life is not about vanity, but it's to serve and to glorify God in all that we do. And so he says, no matter what happens to you, we must remember and know that all things, and you can underline that if God's given you the freedom to write in your Bible, all things, whether good or bad or otherwise, work together for the good of those who, are, who love God and who are called according to his purposes. That's the new knowledge he's given us, that no matter what happens to us, God's going to Somehow in his sovereignty and his power, he's going to work it for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's a magnificent truth that I think we'll spend eternity trying to figure out how in the world, in a world of pain and suffering and guilt and hatefulness and deceitfulness and evil people and evil stuff that goes on, Lord, how are you in control of it? How are you going to use this junk for my good and for your purposes? But he does. He says we know that he will. Whether we see it on this side of eternity or not, we can trust that he knows that he will. And then in verse 29, he kind of sums that up. He says this. He says, 
For whom God foreknew, or knew ahead of time, he also predestined, he's predetermined our end, to be conformed to the image of his Son. And everything that we read today, everything that we've read in chapter 8 of Romans, is for this purpose. He's predetermined, he's predestined, you and I, as believers, to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So if something bad happens to you, Lord, why is this thing there? Why is this happening to me? So you'll be more like my son. And he'll recognize as we read this, as we think about that very fact, that Jesus Christ himself, being the son of God, descending from heaven, coming to be amongst sinful men, experienced, according to the will of his father, experienced pain and suffering. In order that, he would be conformed in the image of God. And he represented God the Father. This is a, a good truth, but sometimes it's a hard truth. But that's the facts. God's predestined us to be conformed into the image of his Son, that he might, talking about Jesus, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. Because while Jesus represented God the Father, and he looked like God the Father while he lived this life, what we need to remember is that that didn't mean that he was the only one that was supposed to look like God the Father and represent him. He was the firstborn. And since he was the firstborn, that means there should be some more born-again believers that follow in the same path that Jesus walked. And so, here we have it. Verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, in other words, he predetermined their end, these he also called. He called us. And whom he called, these he also justified. What does justified mean? Well, it's a term that means he made us righteous. Remember, the, the law of the Old Testament could never justify us. It could never make us righteous. The only thing the law of the Old Testament could do was condemn us. It could show that we were flawed and we needed a Savior because of all of our past sin. That's what it did. It revealed our sin. But then that same God who gave this law said this is the righteous requirements for one to be called righteous, they have to fulfill these requirements. He fulfilled them for us, and then he provided a sacrifice to atone for our sins, to make us at one again with God, to reconcile us. And then through that, we come to him by faith, and he makes us righteous. Right then, at that point, where we say, Lord, I'm yours, you've saved me, we are positionally better than we can ever be. We can't add anything to that salvation. It's already finished. That's what Jesus said on the cross. He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And at the same couple of breaths, he said, it is finished. When he said that, he was talking about salvation of sinful man. It was finished, complete, 100%. Can't do anything to add to it. Can't do anything to take away from it. There's nothing that you and I can do to mess that up. I love that. Because I mess up daily. And the Lord says, my love's greater than your screw-ups. But then, what he says here is those who he's made righteous, that making of someone to be righteous doesn't only happen positionally. It happens that moment when we say, Lord, I'm yours. But then throughout our life, as we continue through this walk in life, he makes us righteous. He made us righteous and he's making us righteous. He's made us new, and He's making us new. Old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. 
And so practically, you and I know, if you've ever tried to walk with the Lord, that you screw up every day and you're like, you said you made me new. Why am I still trying to do all these old things? And he says, I'm making you new. And then he turns up the heat. He allows hard situations to happen. And as those hard situations happen, it causes us to reflect upon what are my goals in life. And then we lay aside anything that will hinder us, hopefully, from becoming more like Jesus. You say, Lord, this thing is ailing me. He says, let go of it. Lord, this thing is hindering me. Then stop it. Not because you have to anymore. It won't save you, but because you know it's hindering you in your relationship with me. And as we do that, he blesses it. And he, he gives us the next step. And it's this constant learning of being the child of God that we already are. Does that make sense? He's adopted us. And then as we live this life out, we become more and more like him. And so, in light of that, he says, Whom he has made righteous and is making righteous... These he also glorifies. These he also glorified. Because when we're made righteous, then we are made glorified. I don't understand how that works, but I know that's his plan. Because when we become more like Jesus, that's when glory shines through us. So then, in light of all these facts that I just went through, that we've already studied, I wanted to make sure we summarized it before we went into today's passage. Because in today's passage, he says, What then... Shall we say of these things? What does this all mean? I think sometimes we study a bunch of facts, but we don't know what it means. It's like studying math and not knowing what you're going to use it for. It's kind of like, well, why do I need to know how to find X? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, because there's another problem you're going to have to figure out. It won't have to do with X's and Y's. It'll have to do with some variables. He says, in light of all these facts, all these benefits that God's given to us as believers... What then shall we say to these things? And then he summarizes it. He says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how do I know that God is for me? Well, he says it in the next sentence. I don't have to make anything up. We don't have to wonder what, how we know God's for us. He says there, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God knows what we need. How do we know he loves us? Because he spared no expense at paying for our debt. He paid off our debt. And he didn't just do it with money, which is corruptible. He didn't do it by having somebody else do his dirty work. He sent his son. He didn't send somebody else's son. He sent his. It cost God to forgive us. Forgiveness always costs the one who forgives. Do you know that? It hurts to forgive people because we have to give something up to do it. And Jesus was the gift. He was the one that cost God the Father to forgive us. And when we recognize that, wow. He spared no expense. He gave his most precious gift. He gave his most precious thing so that you and I could be saved. I don't know about you guys, but somebody said... Hey, you got to do this thing and in order to do it, and it'd be something I wanted to do. You have to give up your child. Boy, that'd be tough. Impossible, even. Only the love of God gives like that. But when we recognize that God did not withhold His own Son from us, we should also recognize that anything else He could give us would be kind of second nature. 
If he give us his most precious possession, of course he's going to give us anything else that we need. He may not give us what we want, <coughs> he'll always give us what we need. He says, how then shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who has made us righteous. Who is he who condemns or separates us from God? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, he reminds us again, who also makes intercession for us. He said that twice in this chapter. You know why the Bible repeats certain things? Because repetition helps us to remember. If you've ever had a good teacher, they say the same thing over and over again. You're like, why are we going over this again? Well, because God knows we need to know it again. He knows. And so, who shall bring a charge against God's children? If, God, if it's God's law that condemned us to death, and then God procured salvation and paid for our debt, then who can, who can separate us from the love of God? And so he goes through a list of things that we oftentimes struggle with, thinking that if we do this or we say that or we go through this, that that's going to stop us from being loved by God. That that's even a fact that God doesn't love us anymore. And if you've ever been loved by somebody and they've let you down, you think, well, they don't love me anymore. And so it would make us think, well, if God says he loves me, then everyone else in my life at some point has let me down. Then why wouldn't God let me down too? Well, God's not like everyone else. He is faithful. He is patient. He endures to the end. If he says he's going to do something, he fulfills it. He's not like us. I love that he's not like us. But what it says there is that not only will he not forsake us, but he's still praying for us. And then in verse 35, he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, Shall persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And so I read those words, and they don't mean a whole lot to me, but I, I read another guy that described them a little better. So since I'm not a wordsmith, I thought I would use his words. So he wrote this, he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He asked the question, Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation is outward pressures. The pressures that you and I experience every day. The pressures that we experience from our co-workers. From our own families. From you know, people that don't like us. Those kind of pressures. Can those separate us from the love of God? Well, what about distress? What's distress? Well, I don't know about you guys, but I experience this a lot. It's that inward pressure that I experience. Whether it's legalism or doubt or fear. Whether they're... Real fears, things that I should be afraid of or not, sometimes they pop up and I start to worry and doubt and anxiety and fears. Shall those distresses that come from within, shall they separate us from the love of God? What about persecution? People are persecuted all over the world because they have faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only way for salvation. They're persecuted for that. Will that separate us from the love of God? Somebody hates you because you trust Jesus? No. What about famine? And in that day, there were many people that didn't have enough food. This was a real issue. If I don't have enough food, will that separate me from the love of God? It might feel like it. It may feel like he's forgotten about us. But no, that won't separate us. What about nakedness? 
Now this is not talking about sinful, ludus nakedness. This is not talking about promiscuity. This is not talking about... This is talking about in that day there were people that didn't have clothing. They wandered about naked because they owed so much money to people that they were like, you know what? I'm taking your clothes. It's all you got left, I know. But you owe me. Nakedness. And because of that, our clothing, whether we realize it or not, spend a couple, you know, 20 minutes out there without your skin covered and you can get pretty burned, even on an overcast day. And so they're exposed to the elements. But shall nakedness separate us from the love of God? No. What about um, peril? You know, whether you're on sea or you're experiencing some sort of storm in your life, shall that separate you from the love of God? What about sword? He mentioned sword, and he's not talking about being threatened with a sword. The word in the original text for sword means execution. What about execution? What if somebody takes my life, lobs my head off like's going on in the Middle East right now? Are they separated from the... Does that mean that God doesn't love them? No. Actually, death is a doorway that takes us to life. It's the means by which we pass on to real life. We get to be with God the Father. We are ushered into his presence by death. So shall swords separate the believers that are killed from the love of God? No. So these first seven things are brief, historical, and prophetical autobiography. Paul's not saying this as some sort of quip or quote. He's saying this because he's experienced it. He's been hurled rocks at. He's been put to nearly death. Many people believe that when he was stoned in one of the places he went to on his missionary journey, that he actually did die. They drug him out of the city. They said, well, that's it for Paul. And then many believe that he was actually raised from the dead and walked back into the city and continued preaching. So Paul wasn't just saying these things as like shallow remarks. He experienced the reality of this truth. Tell you what, when somebody says something from experience versus just head knowledge, it means a lot more. If when we get to meet Paul and we say, hey, thank you for Romans chapter 8, he's gonna go, I wish I didn't have to write it because I knew the reality of it. It hurt to know that. So then he says, What about death? Physical dying. Will that separate us from the love of God? No. What about um, temptations? He says, what about death or life? Now we think about life and we go, well, of course that doesn't separate us from the love of God. That's the best. But life itself is actually harder than death. Because it's one thing to say, I am going to follow Christ until death. And then we get our head lopped off. Most of us probably won't experience that, I hope. But to stay in this world as a Christian is actually harder. Because now we've got to stand up for the truth when it's not easy. The temptation to back off from our faith is very real. To, to not speak up when we need to speak up as Christians. That can be harder. But even that, that life full of temptation, it won't separate us from the love of God. Nor angels, he's talking about good angels. Nor principalities, he's talking about fallen angels, demons that try to tempt us away from the faith. And they spend all their waking hours doing that. Though we can't see them. There's a very reality to spiritual warfare. We won't get into that today. But even that reality won't separate us from the love of God. What about powers? Human rulers? Like the, you know, the leaders of this world. The ones that are even evil. I read a proverb this morning in my daily reading that said this. 
It said, the, the mind of the rulers of this world travel through the hand of God like many waters. In other words, even his, their decisions and what they do is not outside of the control of God. Though sometimes we see what they do and we're like, God, where are you in this? How can you let this ruler do this or that? But God's in control and he's going to use these circumstances. What about things present or things to come? The events of today or the events of the future? Can they separate us from the love of God? What about heights? What about depths? The lowest low and the bottom part of the ocean. You know, the places where we feel like we're out of control, we're out of God's protection. Can those things separate us from the love of God? What about any other creature, any conceivable thing in the universe? Can any of those things separate us from the love of God? And the reality is, no. Our goal, every one of those things, even when they do happen, famines happen, death, persecution, execution, oppression from without, oppression from within, we all experience those. When all of those things happen, they bring us closer to our goal. And that goal that God has for you and I as His children is to make us more like Christ. They will further the purposes of God if He allows them. Because He won't allow them unless they're for our good. Remember Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. So all of those things in the life of the believer lead us to our goal, which is glory. And it may not feel like that for the momentary, but in the end game, in the very end of the run, we'll look back and say, Lord, thank you. We may not necessarily be able to thank him now practically, but he'll give us the faith to thank him even though when it doesn't feel good. There was a staunch believer in uh, the days of the 5th century his name was John Chrysostom. Uh, I'm probably saying his last name wrong. But he was brought before the Roman emperor of that day. And I, I'm reading this because a guy mentioned it and I was like, well, we're reading the book of Romans. This is in context. He was brought before the emperor in the 5th century and he was threatened with banishment from the, the kingdom of Rome for his faith. And he, he replied when the emperor said, hey, I'm going to banish you. He said, and I'm going to read it in the old King James because that's how he spoke. Uh, he said, Thou canst not banish me, for this world is my father's house. You can't banish me because this world is my father's house. And he replied, the emperor did, he said, Well, then I will slay thee. I'll put you to death. And he said to him, he said, uh, Nay, thou canst not, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away he says, my life is hid with Christ and God, you can't take my life from me. My life is not bound up in this earthly tent. If you take my life from me, I'm going to go be with my Father in heaven. Even death can't separate me from the love of God. He says, well, then I'll take away your treasures. And so he responded, he said, nay, but thou canst not, for my treasure is not here, but it's in heaven and my heart is there as well. Remember, Jesus said, where your treasure lies, there your heart will be also. He says, you can take away my treasures. They're not here. You can't hurt someone that believes that, that lives that way. He says, but I will drive thee away from man and thou shalt have no friend left. I'm going to take away all your friends. I'm going to separate you from people. 
Solitary confinement, right? You won't have anybody around you. Then what? So John responded. He says, Nay, thou canst not, for I have a friend in heaven from whom thou canst not separate me. He says, I defy thee, for there is nothing that thou canst do to hurt me. Jesus said, Why fear man who can only hurt the body? You should fear the one who can punish you for eternity. And that man lived that way. He believed that way, and it was proven by what he stood on. He defied the emperor because he was living for a kingdom whose builder and maker is God. He was living to please the real king. And so, he's going to tell them. He says here in verse 36, well, let's read the last part of verse 35 again. He says, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword separate us from the love of God? And then he gives a quote from Psalm verse 44, chapter 44, verse 22. He says, As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And he's reading, he's quoting from Psalm verse 40, chapter 44 because in that chapter, the sons of Korah wrote this song and it was a prayer to God because they were feeling like they were being distressed, like, they, like God had forsaken them. And at the end of the psalm, they came to the, to the conclusion. He says, it's for your sake that we're being killed all day long. Even if God allows us to be killed is what the psalmist was saying, then it's for God's purposes. Now I was going to read through the psalm, uh, but if you get a chance, read through it on your own. They recount in the beginning of Psalm 44 the faithfulness of God, and then they, they go, hey, how come you're letting all this happen? And at the end of chapter 44 of the psalm, I guess I will go ahead and turn there. At the end of Psalm 44, they even cry out in their distress and they say, Lord, why are you sleeping? Why aren't you paying attention to us? Don't you see that we're going through this hard time. And we really end the psalm as if it, he really never answers. And Psalm 44 at the end, verse 23, he says, Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our body clings to the ground. He says, arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Lord, why have you forgotten us? And I think sometimes we think when bad things happen to, pe to Christians, we think God's forsaken them. But the reality is, is God might right there in the midst of their situation be there allowing it so they'll cry out, so they'll draw near to him once again. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes... When I'm in my comfortable situations, I don't really cry out for God. But when I'm going through a hard time, when I'm going through pain, that's when I cry out to God the most. And, and He died so we could have a relationship with Him. So everything He's going to use for our good, right? Verse 37 in Romans 8, He comes to His conclusion. At least for this chapter. He says, Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, all the things he'd already asked about, 
shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God, which has been shown to us in the example of Christ Jesus. He says we are more than conquerors. You know what conquerors do in a battle? They get their sword, they get their shield, they put on all their armor, and they go to battle with no guarantee of coming back. The best of soldiers go into battle not knowing if they'll return. The battle may be won, but they may lose, they may die. But what he says here is that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he says that because, remember what we spent the first half talking about, that Jesus already paid for our salvation. The war's already been won, but we're still practically fighting the battle out. And God's using the battle to make us and build character in us that is righteous. But we're fighting better than any war that's ever been fought before. Anybody else that goes to war, they don't know if they'll come back. But as Christians, when we trust the Lord, what the reality is is that when we go off to battle, not knowing whether something's going to hurt us or, or mess with us, we can know that whether we come back or not, we won. Because we're fighting, unlike any other army in the world, we're fighting from a place of victory. And that's a tremendous truth, that if we could totally grasp, it would take away all fear. It would take away all anxiety, because we would realize when I step out the door, when I go to work, when I go to talk to my enemy, when I try to bless those who curse me, whether I feel like it goes good or not, the war's already been won. Because the captain of my faith is Jesus Christ. So, let's pray. Father, thank you for fighting the battle. Thank you for being with us in the battle. Thank you that we fight from a place of victory and that when we go out and conquer, it's because you're with us. If you're for us, then no one can be against us. And yet there are so many people in this world that believe that you are for them. Whether it's the, the people that go out and do jihad and believe that God's for them. Or those who go and knock on doors on Saturday mornings and try to deceive people into thinking that God, or that Jesus wasn't God, but that he was just a prophet. Lord, uh, if you are for us, and the reality is you're only for us, if we come to you through the righteous blood of Jesus and we've been reconciled to you. Lord, help us not to live lives of deception thinking that you're for us when you're not. If there's anybody here that's, that's not come to you the way that you prescribed through Jesus, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And for the rest of us that know you, Lord, help us to live in the light of the truth that you've already won the war, the battle is still waging on down here, but we know how it ends. Lord, that's so comforting. I pray that we would really live in the peace and the comfort of that truth. And Lord, thank you for loving us while we were not lovable. Thank you that you continue to love us, even in the moments where we're not lovable. Lord, help us to rest in that love, to abide in it, to accept it, and to, out of an abundance of that love, recognizing how much we've been loved, Lord, help us to love our neighbors ourselves. Help us to love the unlovable like you did us. And may your name be glorified in this valley. May your name be glorified beyond this valley to the outer reaches of the earth through us. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.